Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. We are taking back the controls, not to restore order, but to promote chaos. Unpredictable human creativity is not the problem, but the solution. Join the party, find the others, throw off the yoke of surveillance and manipulation, and celebrate the quirky, anomalous behaviors and approaches that make real people so much more than robots, algorithms, or consumer profiles. You are not a number, you are a human being. Playing for Team Human today, Tim O'Reilly, publisher, tech visionary, and impresario, and author of the new book, What's the Future? There's this incredible force for good, and there's this incredible force for extraction. And, and I think we just have to say, can we get more of one and less of the other? Tim will be sharing his optimistic vision for how we can program a more equitable economy. It's time to intervene on behalf of people, I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been thinking a lot lately about the seeming inevitability of technology development and how sometimes the emergence of a new technology or app or platform seems to impose upon us this demand that we implement it. You know, it's like we come up with some new thing, and who could blame us when we get a new thing, if it actually works, why wouldn't we start to use the thing? You know, it's only logical to stand in the way of, say, a new cancer treatment, a new hearing aid, a new way to connect to others, a new way to make sure people get the advertisements that might apply to them, a new way to make things faster with less energy. 
of course we're going to adopt those new strategies, those new technologies, those new things. We implement them because on some level, at least for some little piece of the pie, they're good. We just simply don't see how implementing that technology, how taking this new thing on board might negatively impact some other part of the system. You know, oh, let's bring in TV. Why not? TV worked. We can see things happening elsewhere. We could see sporting events. We can see things happening in other parts of the globe. You know, we didn't realize when we all adopted TV that it would also have some negative effects. It would take up our time. It would be desocializing. It would grow to the point where we're no longer watching TV together, but watching it individually. Or the automobile. Sure, when we're living in a world where people are becoming worried that there's going to be so much horse manure that we're not going to be able to dig ourselves out and the cities will become unlivable. The automobile looked like a great thing. It was cleaner. It seemed perfectly clean. It was high tech. It would create jobs. It was faster. It made things more convenient. It was only over time when we started to rebuild society around the needs of the automobile that well, its benefits became outweighed by some of its problems. So the inevitability of a technology, our willingness to to take it in, it doesn't really come out of some evil or some great human fault. It's really just when our utilitarian priorities end up overtaking what we might call our uh, more essential values, where our peripheral needs, our needs to do things better in this utilitarian way, you know, end up trumping our bigger values. I know, yeah, people always look at me when I use the word Trump, like I'm referring to something I'm not. Um, It's just a matter of going off course, because we get driven by the technology or the ability rather than the human goals at the center. And I think what we need to do is start looking at where in the process are we folding in our essential human values? Can we, when we bring a new technology on board, is it possible to look at it and say, okay, this is a great thing and it's going to serve us in this small way right now, but what will its longer-term effects be? What will it actually look like? And this is what McLuhan was trying to teach us how to do, the media theorist Marshall McLuhan, where he would say, okay, let's try to figure out, you know, what effects is this going to amplify? What is it going to repress? What values is it going to retrieve? And what will happen when this technology is pushed to the extreme? Only it's really hard to do that in advance. When we got social media, it would have been really difficult to predict that, oh, well, what it's really going to do is amplify advertising and surveillance because it's going to become part of the attention economy. And that's not in itself some dastardly goal, but it wouldn't have been readily apparent at the beginning of social media. It seemed like what social media was going to do is lead people maybe to judge each other on more superficial 
uh, choices that they make about their profiles or that that's really what we were all concerned about at the beginning, that am I the collection of books and movies and rock stars that I like? You know, what happens when I start defining myself in these ways? We weren't really envisioning, oh, what's going to happen when uh, foreign governments are creating propaganda on social media, making it look like it's your neighbors saying things about candidates and um, using psychological techniques to get you to be afraid or to agree or to regress to some childlike state. Now, that wasn't really what we were predicting. But what we have to be able to do is when the technology is in place, once it's grown, we've got to be able not to just maintain an off switch, but to be able to evaluate how is this working for us? And then is it so entrenched that we can't move away from it? If my smartphone is really making me unhappy, how can I scale back its influence on my life? If algorithms are really screwing up the stock market, how can we scale back how much influence they have? How could we regulate? That's where regulations come in, whether it's personal regulations or government regulations. Nothing is inevitable except, I would admit at this point, except technological development. It will keep coming. So we can't take the Luddite perspective that, oh, we're just going to hold this stuff back. But we can take a balanced perspective where we're going to evaluate how this technology is impacting us. And every time it feeds back in, every time it iterates, we can judge for ourselves is this helping or not? And if it's not, how can I change it? How can I change either the amount of impact it's having on me, the amount that I'm using it, the way it's working on me? Where are its openings for modification? Tim O'Reilly's actually been thinking about this a long time. And, you know, while he may have more faith in our ability to engineer technological solutions to the world's problems, and he may have shown a lot more confidence in the past than I have in the market's ability to right most wrongs, uh, we've spent a bit of time together over the past couple of years, and I like to think I've had some small influence over his thinking. You know, for sure, his vision today is based on some of the same underlying premises of program or be programmed or throwing rocks at the Google bus, that we have to stop using technology for whatever the short-term shareholders want and start thinking in humanity's long-term interests. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. I'm Caroline Jack, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard Heinberg, and I'm on Team Human. My name's Neil Gornflow, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Andy Fisher, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Elizabeth Stewart, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is Tim O'Reilly, author of What's the Future? So I... I like, I I was going to call it what the fuck. Um, I I like <laughs> I like what's the future, and why it's up to us because it it travels the same places that I go in my own head. Um, but 
you tend to come out, maybe you have a happier life than I do or something, but you tend to come out on a, a, a generally more optimistic places. So uh, I want to start with the hardest part. And I don't mean this as a challenge to you so much as a challenge, obviously, to the ideas that we're all wrestling with as we try to see, uh, envision ways for technology to bring humanity out of this bizarre phase of, of extraction and inequality and into something better. So one of the main things that you argue is that we can rewrite our algorithms to favor humanity instead of just the market or uh, a few people. And there's a, a techno-solutionist strain in that idea, as if, you know, someone who kind of, if we know what's best, we can program this into our technology and then live happily ever after, in a sense, you know, where people are still more guided by their programming or by the programming of our devices than their kind of moment-to-moment intuition or, or long-term human agendas. So do you, do you see us being able to create a landscape that just kind of favors humanity? Well, let me be clear that I'm using technology as a metaphor and a sort of a way of, of, of sort of explicating some lessons about the way our modern systems work that we can then apply to the economy. So I'm not literally saying, you know, we want to program this, although I do think that there's a very powerful analogy uh, in the way our society runs to the way that these big data systems are given a task. I use the image in the book of they're like the genies of Arabian mythology, where we we ask them to do something, we don't quite understand it, and of course they don't get it quite right as a result. And the principal message of the book is that this hollowing out of the economy, this human hostile economy that we're building, is fundamentally not, it's not intrinsic to technology. It's not intrinsic mm-hmm. to society. It's a side effect of, you know, effectively the way we told our economy to act. And if, 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 if we have that sense of human agency, you know, then we have at least the hope of changing it. And I, I, the thing I've been bringing up uh, lately, I don't use this analogy in the book. I mean, I mentioned, you know, the divine right of capital, you know, we, you know, we'll one day look back on the divine right of capital as we now look back on the divine right of kings. Mm-hmm. But, you know, think about it. In 1776, a set of people said, we don't buy that idea anymore. We, we believe something different about the way society can be organized. And, you know, it's not like you do that once and you're done. It was a very painful process from the very beginning. It's very, been a very painful process ever since. And we're now in a, in a bad way again because there are the impulses to domination in human society and extraction. But the idea that we could aspire to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone, you know, was kind of a new thought in the global brain, so to speak. And I feel like it's time for some more new thoughts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's not so much that I'm optimistic as it is that I believe that if we want to have a better future, we have to imagine it first and we have to believe in it because then we'll work very hard to try to make it come true. 
Right. The I guess then the question becomes is how fundamental a change do we need to make? You know, and I guess, you know, where when I'm looking for sort of distinctions between what you describe in what's the future and say what I'm describing in throwing rocks at the Google bus is I tend to go back all the way to, you know, the invention of of central currency and the corporation and saying, look, these are intrinsically extractive uh, uh, instruments, and we're going to have to just undo them. And it feels a little bit like you're saying, well, no, we don't necessarily have to go back that far, that we can just make uh, the kind of capitalism we have, you know, a bit just less destructive. Uh, an easy example would be, uh, you know, that you say, which is true, you know, when you're on Amazon or Facebook or Google, that we're all acting as beta testers in the open source sense on something that's going to do well and and help serve us all. So we're in a deal, say say Google being the least uh, offensive of these examples for me anyway, because they share their profits with other people, because they do, they've created tremendous value for everybody who's using, used Google Docs or Gmail or spreadsheets or anything. We are richer because of Google, and Google's richer because of us. And then we are the the knowing beta testers of their new platforms and contributing to their development process. But there's a lot of folks who would say, well, wait a minute, if if we are beta testers of their stuff, we should be included. We should be, you know, part of a platform cooperative that they're exploiting us. How dare they do that? You know, where do you sort of fall on that on that spectrum? Well, I guess I would say a couple of things. And, and this goes back to the maybe some of the fundamental disagreements that I had with the free software movement back in the nineties. Right. You know, you know, like I remember kind of saying this at the time, open source is like, we're trying to discover the way of life, you know, the, the, the way that things naturally work. And I do think that, yes, there's a, there's a strain in human nature in which some people want to be extractive, but there's other strains in which, you know, sharing just has enormous power and really works. And my goal back in those days, and it's still my goal, is to find out the ways that you know, we can build businesses that effectively rely on the way of life, that they find those positive externalities that, you know, business can create. It's almost like... Uh, you know, a, a uh, you know the battle between good and evil in capitalism is is sort of echoes, you know, dualistic religious systems or whatever, uh, you know, because there's this incredible force for good, and there's this incredible force for extraction, and and I think we just have to we you know we have to say can we get, you know, more of one and less of the other, but but I do think exactly where we you know, draw the line and we say, do we do, you know, something completely different? I, I certainly believe that there will be human societies that will be organized under completely different lines than we use today. I think part of, of the message of the book, you know, I try to, again, draw some through lines from kind of reinventions in technology where things that seemed unthinkable suddenly became thinkable because somebody did it and proved that it really worked. And, and I think the same thing needs to be true in, in economic policy and, and political organization. You know, it's like I do think that so many of, of our 
policy debates are like a multiple choice uh, mm. exam. We give you, well, you can have, you know, we, we can, you know, we're going to fight over whether we're going to slide the corporate tax rate up or down. We're going to slide the personal income tax brackets up or down, as opposed to saying, well, we can do something completely different. Right. You know, I, I don't really go into particular policy proposals in the book, but I certainly have a few. You know, one of the, the, the themes in the book is is that we basically substituted a huge amount of, of, uh, of inve- investment that should be going to people and to, you know, the real world has gone into financial betting markets. And, and, right. and this is actually a, a fundamental breakdown of capitalism that people are, are discovering. I think as, as I, I quote Warren Buffett, who said, you know, sometimes people prefer to go to the casino than to the restaurant. And he, he was saying it, this right. is not a good thing. Uh, and, you know, and there's John Maynard Keynes, you know, a little bit of speculation. OK, you know, but when, you know, real investment is the, is the bubble on the wave of speculation, uh, that's a real problem. And that's where we've gotten to in our economy. The financial markets, you know, we have this, that's actually kind of another idea that the idea that we use one word, the market, and people are utterly confusing financial markets and the real market of goods and services exchanged by people. And in that intellectual confusion, we see so much that goes wrong. I mean, luckily, you know, I mean, Robert Reich wrote a good book on that. I mean, throwing rocks at the Google bus is easily um, 90% about that distinction. Right. There are these capital markets and real markets, and there's a, the markets of, of people getting the goods and services they need and exchanging value is very different from this almost uh, almost a landlord-like market of, okay, well, we've got a, we've got a monopoly on the capital, so uh, once we put our money in, now we run... Uh, we run the show, and that's a very different kind of a long distance uh, yep. uh, model. So I, I'm 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 with you there. The where I think your your strength and what I find it harder, and a lot of I think my uh, uh, comrades <laughs> have problems doing is uh, what you're what you're looking at is more how can we balance all of this great new peer-to-peer stuff that technology can do and all of the acceleration and amplification that digital technology provides, how can we balance that with a healthy marketplace? I don't mean investor marketplace. Yeah. I mean a real marketplace. The problem is the the left or progressives, sometimes rightly, tend to look at this as, oh, you're just helping investors figure out ways to co-opt the thing that we've just built. So that would be, say, where Richard Stallman would come from. You know, So he was an extreme, a kind of an orthodox free software guy who then sees, wait a minute, you're going to use the free software model to do this open source thing, which is people making money off it. Or um, Avegni Morozov and, and, you know, his his hit piece, you know, in The Baffler, it was basically saying that, oh, look, um, you guys have rebranded free software as neoliberalism. And, you know, so it's become... Yeah, I I hear you. The one thing I would say about that is that that assumes that one of those threads is the original state of free software and and the other (laughs) is is a defection from it. You know, what I said is, look... There are people who are doing free software by separate rules. You know, um, the Berkeley Unix project 
which I was, you know, kind of involved in, which actually, you know, predated, you know, Unix predated anything that Richard Stallman did was it was under a license that was a proprietary license, but it had all the community aspects. Most of the, you know, the pieces of software that really mattered were developed by, you know, this distributed network of universities. The source code was shared and people just weren't worrying about it. Kirk McCusick, who took over from Bill Joy, the Berkeley, uh, you know, software distribution, said, yeah, Richard has this idea that something wrong with copyright and uh, so we need this special copy left to keep people from, you know, miss, you know do, building commercial stuff on top of it. I go, at Berkeley, we just say, we practice Copy Central. Take our stuff down to Copy Central and make a copy of it. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. And, right. you know, I, I look at the World Wide Web. Put into the public domain. You know the original design of uh, you know the von Neumann machine. Put into the public domain. The the internet effectively public domain. The idea that commercial activity and uh, freedom are incompatible is it, it seems wrong to me. I mean, again, more power to Richard who who wanted to kind of create a body of work under the terms that he wanted to share it with and people willing to, to accept his terms and, and you know, create a lot of value. But there were other people who, who I think had more generous terms that said, we don't mind you building on top of what we do. I mean, Bob Scheifler with the X system, Windows system, which was a, he was a big shaper for me. He said, no, this is what we want. You know, we're giving this away for people in the commercial world to build on top of. And right. uh, that to me is, is to me an even greater freedom, but it's a freedom that brings with it a responsibility on the part of those who've given the gift to give something back. Right. I mean, it's trying to leverage both sides of it. I yeah. mean, to say that, look, we can leverage, you know, sharing and cooperation and community and, and worker as shareholder and whatever it might be, but we can also uh, run a profitable enterprise on this, yeah. that both sort of work at the same time. I mean, and, and in that sense, I mean, uh, assuming we're not always, you know, we're not talking about the market as Wall Street so much as the market as uh, people exchanging goods, services, exchange, creating and exchanging value with each other. Um, it's very interesting, your your treatment of uh, universal basic income in this in this book and in a couple of the uh, uh, talks I've heard you do, where you really frame UBI as maybe a necessary patch, but that it's that it's a temporary measure um, as we move towards a more equitable marketplace. I guess. Yeah, I, I you know to me, uh, UBI as a mechanism, you know, I don't mind it. It's practiced in various places. Alaska has a version of it. Here's the thing: I would just say, is it the most effective way? You know, if you look at the history, for example, of uh, the Industrial Revolution, one of the biggest ways that they dealt with all this was uh, they lowered the working week. You know, we went down from 70 to eventually, you know, 35, 40 hours. Uh, we could do that again. Uh, you know, we took a whole class of people out of the workforce and we, we, we funded a different activity for them, i.e. education. You know, we used to send kids to factories and farms and then we sent them to school. Uh, you know, we could basically go, oh, yeah, we could do that again. We could actually, you know, provide ways to fund education throughout life. You know, so let's say 
you know, companies uh, are, are providing an education benefit, which means that you only work 30 hours a week and you have an allocation of 10, hour, you know, 10 hours a week uh, to, to learn things. You know, that would be a really interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Family leave is already kind of a hack on the system, which is, is basically taking people out of the workforce to do human scale things. And, uh, you know, caring allowances. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that might be more targeted. Again, I'm not saying that, that uh, you know, UBI is a bad idea. I think we should certainly try it. I just, I'm not sure that this one size fits all. You know, the, the narrative we have that it's all free market. You know, we, we're sort of free market fundamentalists in a lot of ways in America. And, uh, you know, I, I read books like Hajun Chang's, uh, you know, Bad Samaritans about the failures of, uh, you know, foreign aid. And how did a, his country, you know, South Korea, really become rich? through targeted industrial policy. And then you read Brad DeLong's Concrete Economics, you know, uh, which is basically a look back at how America became rich through targeted economic policy. Uh, you know, or, or Mariana Mazzucato's The Entrepreneurial State, you know, the role of, uh, of government intervention in creating the tech industry, which, uh, which is you know, then turned around and repaid the gift by being generally anti-government. You know, right. Like, so on the one hand, we're talking about how do we argue with with people and with government you know the the other kinds of arguments i have to make are usually to companies themselves so i've had good luck speaking to companies explaining to them that look if you exercise your monopoly power over this marketplace you are going to extract value from the very marketplace on which you're depending now the really the evil ones of, to use evil as a word say well that doesn't matter because we're just going to leverage that monopoly to go into something else but the smart ones realize oh right if i make my customers rich then i will make more money than if i bankrupt my customers the way say walmart does and you've got a great quote that you address the same thing where you say, quote, over time, as networks reach monopoly or near monopoly status, they must wrestle with the issue of how to create more value than they capture, how much value to take out of the ecosystem versus how much they must leave for other players in order for the marketplace to continue to thrive. So how, uh, not just how do we convince companies to do that, but how does an Amazon, uh, how could they be be encouraged and how would they implement looking at say the book industry and whether they are helping these players survive or whether they're just replacing and destroying them yeah you know the, one of the things that i uh have wondered about uh, you know is this idea of what we measure and report on has a huge influence and uh, it does seem to me that a, a sense, you know, there are cases, and I talk about some of them in the book, like, uh, you know, Google's economic impact report, you know, Airbnb does one, but they are, they are self-serving, you know, so like, we, you know, we, yeah. you know we, here's what we've done to create economic activity for our customers. And I think there would be a really interesting discipline and an area for economic research to look at the relationship between platform companies and the value they create. And it's hard, it is really hard, but we are getting into a world of big data uh, where we can in fact do things that were really hard before. And I don't see why we couldn't, for example, 
you know, understand, you know, are the value chains and where value gets created and where it gets captured uh, in, in a much more comprehensive way and come up with, with financial standards. And, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, actually this is something, uh, 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 there's a book called uh, The Divine Right of Capital. It was recommended to me. It's on my bedside table. One of the ideas in it, which is, Right now, you know, literally our financial statements show people as a cost, you know, which you don't really mm -hmm. think about. But yeah, you know, it's like the financial statement is, you know, here are all the costs of the business and the people who work there are a cost and the capital is the output of the business. And, mm -hmm. and her suggestion, the author, was what if we put Marjorie Kelly, the yeah. money that's made by all the people who are part of this system you know, in the outputs of the business. You know, just that, that, that simple way of rethinking the way we map the financial flows of a business. You know, it's like, okay, we did this activity. Here's how much value went to customers. Here's how much value went to suppliers. Here's how much value went to employees. Here's how much value went to capital. Right. It's amazing because you talk to most VCs and the minute they find out that there's a human being somewhere involved in the company's process, they go, oh, well, then that won't scale. And it's like, of course it could scale. It's going to scale and provide employment and, and income opportunities for more people in the process. That's not bad. That's good. Again, kind of going back to this, you know, we, we kind of imagine that some continuation of the current situation is the best we can hope for. But we could, in fact, have an economy where, you know, Amazon is dropping stuff at our door, you know, same day, next day, uh, instead of retail, and actually be employing more people. Yeah, there's 4.6 million people working in retail jobs in the U.S. But I think we're getting up to a couple of million in the, you know, in that delivery, warehousing, whatever ecosystem already. Or better jobs, you know, or if, if they're totally out of that system, then why can't they go into, yeah. you know, home health care, uh, literacy, uh, education, all the stuff that we say we don't have enough money for, we have the, oh, yeah. the, the, the people power We totally power have the money for and that, it, too. I mean, again, this kind of goes back to this notion uh, that, that's so, you know, central to me is sort of the idea that all of the possible benefits of productivity should be allocated to capital. You know, wherever possible. Right. And, and that's just wrong. I mean, we have this increased productivity from machines and it could be allocated to people. And, and, and you know, so again, believing that that's the case. And then the question is, well, what are the best mechanisms for doing it? You know, marketplaces have drawbacks. They have to be managed, but they're a very powerful tool. And then the question is, well, what other mechanisms? When the marketplaces fail, what else do we do? And we go, okay, well, we can you know, we intervene in the rules of marketplaces, you know, and even financial markets, you know, when I think about, well, what would be some of the fixes that I would put in place? You know, clearly, you know, one of the villains in my book is mm -hmm. the alignment, uh, Jensen and Meckling, you know, the alignment of shareholder value with corporate management through the use of, of corporate executive stock options. And, uh, right. You know, you go, well, well, what might we do differently? Well, I go, we, we, we do something with, say, 401k plans, which is we say, well, you can only, you can only, you can't have these top weighted plans. You know, you have to actually give, you know, 80% to the lower compensated people. You know, so you go, wow, that would be a really interesting, 
you know, change to the rules of stock compensation. Don't forbid it. Just say, look, you can give as much as you want, but you know, you have to give you know four or five times as much to everybody who works for the company. You know, and and, and then of course they go, well, let's get rid of more right. people, maybe. And they do, and the whole and what their companies are realizing now as the world gets smaller That's is the exactly whole right. world is the well. If you're making your you're making your smartphones with you know by sending little brown children into caves in Africa, it's going to come back to bite you the same way as dropping mercury in yeah. in China or uh, or South America. It's one little yeah, place. Yeah, I, I think that that, that you know that mm-hmm. wonderful phrase that I, I I quote in the book from uh, De Tocqueville where he talks about self interest properly regarded. And of course, that, I picked that up in turn from Joseph Stieglitz's article in which he introduced the term the one percent, you know, uh, and that idea of, mm. you know, in a lot of ways, that whole, that whole thread of the book is a meditation on what platforms teach us about self-interest properly regarded. You know, you look after your platform, or eventually your platform will fail. Right, and look out for your platform, or eventually it will subsume whatever reality it was. Uh, it was invented to to yeah. stimulate or assist, you know, which sort of and that which gets to I mean even beyond the economics of it is you know the the sense that a lot of us the place a lot of us have gotten to the technology really needs to be here to augment humanity and humans rather than replacing them, you know. But at the same time, you know, the issue we're confronting is that every new invention is also amounts to an amputation of one kind. Or another, you know, we become dependent on the technology, and it it's augmenting something, but it's also numbing. Or, or yeah, I, I, no, I hear you. You know, the thing here's this great. Uh, it's one of my favorite uh, little discoveries recently. Uh, my friend Joanna Bryson, who's uh, an AI um, a professor at uh, the University of Bath and, and at Princeton, uh, gave a talk at our AI conference last week, and and the slide that caught my eye was one that said. 12,000 years of AI. You know, all of human history is AI. You know, our entire rise up from, from the apes is artificial intelligence. You know, we figured out how to, you know, encode information in ever more sophisticated ways. And, you know, you think about that. Yes, we are, uh, you know, crippled relative to, you know, our forebears in many, many ways. You know, you think of the, you read the stories of the the song lines and people who can find their way around, uh, you know, a, a barren landscape with no, with you know, with none of our instruments. Or, or you think, you know, I love the the uh, opening passage in Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. You know, Yaley's question, the uh, guy in New Guinea who says, "You guys are so stupid." If I took you into the jungle, you'd be dead in, in three days. How come you have all the cargo? <laughs> you know, And it's just like such a great question. You know, I, like if I were back in the Middle Ages, I maybe I would have made it to be a scribe or a, but I would probably have been dead. Yeah. 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 Because I was, as my, 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 or further back, my brother, when I was a kid, you know, I was this nearsighted kid who read books all the time and. My brother used to tease me. He called me the failed hunter-gatherer. <laughs> right. But the, the trick is, I mean, and you get to it too. I mean, it's what, what Korzybski was trying to warn us about. And a lot of, a lot of folks where I could argue that the Bible is even warning about this, is that we end up 
confusing the map for the territory. Yeah. We our symbol systems or our ideas or our our uh, ways of representing things end up becoming the focus rather than the things that they once yeah. referred to. And that's of particular danger in a highly digital world where so much is being represented. I don't know that it's a greater danger than it's been in the past. I mean, it could be, maybe, but I, I think that the idea that... Um, you know, we've seen, for example, manias before. We've seen fake news before. Uh, we've seen, you know, I mean, think about the, you know, the children's crusade. I mean, no social media there. <laughs> you know, yet, yet, uh, you know, uh -huh. tens of thousands of children were sent off to, to march to their deaths. You know, on this crazy crusade. Uh, you know, the, the, the there's so many examples throughout history of, of. Uh, you know, manias uh, that were completely independent of, of tech, today's technology. So, I, 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 yes, I totally agree. The thing that I would say about technology is the latest technology always becomes a target, and that's unfair. But it also is wonderful because it gives us an opportunity to see something we couldn't see before. You know, so for example, you know, the uproar about um, predictive policing algorithms. You know, it's like, oh my God, they, you know, they, they unfairly target people of color. Why? Why are they unfairly targeting people of color? Oh, because the data that we fed into them were arrest records uh, from 40, 50 years of unfairly targeting people of color. We were doing it right. and now we can see it because we loaded into exactly. the algorithm and it became uh, right. and because it was the machine we were we were our our sensitivity was heightened and that was a great thing. It is as long as we're willing to exercise human intervention. As long as we're willing to say, "Oh, look, the values that this computer has are yeah, the ones absolutely. that we just embedded into yeah, it." That's the what's so now let's look at those. Yeah. <laughs> you know, of the book's title, you know, it's like, you know, Yeah. Dudes, we're just encoding ourselves into these machines. So if we want technology to do something right. differently, let's tell it to do something different. Exactly. It's yeah. what I used to say: programmer be programmed. You know, <laughs> it's, you're, you're going to get what you're, you're going to get what you sow. You know, but before we before we stop, there's I, I want to take you to one more place where um, you yeah. started talking a little in the book about the global brain, and I, I don't mean to go airy fairy spiritual on you, but I've I've suspected or maybe hoped since my early more you know homebrew computer club Timothy Leary cyberdelic uh, technology moments that the whole of the internet all of this wiring up is almost a test run for something that human beings are going to relatively soon come to the realization that we're part of one organism, that we are a global brain, that we've been disconnected all the time, you know, that that on some level, there's been no privacy. You can't lie. We all know what everyone else is thinking. We're all part of the same thing. I mean, do you share that sort of hope that humanity is going to come to the realization that we are a, a collective, uh, collaborative species? You know, it, it, it's sort of funny. I, I guess I would say that I believe that we will have those moments of realization and we will have those moments where we realize the fruits of that connectedness in a really positive way. And we're also going to have moments when we realize the fruits 
in very negative ways. Mm. And, you know, it's just like all the rest of human history. You know, just about everything else we've done has had high moments and, uh, you know, horrible moments. And often all at the same time. And I, I guess I just, you know, I, I, I feel like in the end, uh, we can only, you know, th the world is going to be different. There's no question in my mind that, uh, you know, the future is not going to be a sort of a simple reflection of the past. Uh, already we've, we, you know, we've seen this. And I, I think people get a little bit overhyped about, you know, changes happening faster than, you know, ever before. And I go, really? You know, we went from, you know, I mean, I think there are a lot of other people who have made this same observation, not original at all. But you, you take somebody from the late 1800s and show them the 1950s, it was already so far from their past. Right. You know, you show somebody from the 50s today, not as far, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, our future has lagged what we, well, certainly what I thought it would be at when, when I was a kid. Right. So, Me too. You know, so, so it's not like it's going super fast. It, it's really, it's, it's uh, going sideways in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the future is either going to be, it could be way better. It could be way worse. It could be, uh, you know, a mixture of both, which is probably the most likely. But it's sure as hell not going to be uh, some, you know, namby-pamby continuation of uh, the way it is now. Right. <laughs> it's going to be something. It's going to be something. And, and like you say, it's going to be up to us. So, well, thanks a lot for... Uh for doing this. Thanks for being a, uh, a member of Team Human. I really, I really want people to, to, to sort of own this moment. We, we have a lot of choices to make as a society. And, I, you know, I feel like I have some influence in the tech industry. And also the tech industry has some lessons that it can bring to policymakers and to society about reinvention. Right. And it's not the technologies that are doing that reinventing. It's the humans, you know, whether or not we're going to use those at all. You know, the, the REI model of a business does not require uh, technology. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it's a new way of thinking, a new way of acting, not right. just a new way of programming. So much, so much opportunity for us to make that better world that we, we wish would exist. You've been on Team Human, where we've been engaging with Tim O'Reilly, tech publisher and the author of What's the Future? We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.